So if you were to ask a guy why he wants to climb a mountain, he would probably give you a very simple answer. Because it's there. You can't miss it. You can't avoid it. It's just asking to be tackled. If you're to ask me why it is that we're talking about what we're going to talk about this morning, I would give you the very same and simple answer. Because it's there and we can't avoid it. It's there in the culture. It's certainly there in the scriptures over and over again. It's in my pastoral care, counseling situations. It's in our homes. There is a mountain that we simply cannot and must not avoid. And because it's there, we need to address it. Today, we're continuing a teaching series that we have been in for the last month called God Made Man. And what we're looking at is, is giving to the guys of this church a fresh vision for what it means to be a man made in the image of God. We're not only giving it to the guys, but we're giving it and handing it to all those who are rooting for them to succeed. And very quickly, to, to the ladies, I, I just have to say thank you so much for being so understanding about the necessity of this series. We, we don't typically speak directly to one half of the room, and, and I've been very grateful for your understanding of the necessity of this conversation for the well-being uh, of the men in our church, but understanding that, that when, when the guys are doing well, everybody's doing okay, and for you championing this conversation and this cause, uh, I just want you to know I'm very, very thankful for that. Throughout the course of this series, we've talked about five marks of a God-made man. And the first we said was faithful. He is deeply dependent upon the finished and forever work of Jesus Christ. And the second thing we said is that a God-made man is healthy. Specifically, he is well aware of his sins and his struggles, his hurts and his difficulties, and he takes ownership over dealing with those things. And then last week, we talked about the third mark, which is responsibility. A God-made man willingly takes ownership over the well-being of other people around him. And today, we come to the fourth mark of a God-made man. And the fourth mark is stewardship. But it's not about money. A God-made man is a good steward of the gift that he's been given, of his own drive and his own desire. Now, you might be wondering, Matt, do we really, really have to talk about this? And the short answer to that is, yeah, yeah. And as awkward as it is for you, oh, trust me, way worse for me, okay? <laughs> but we do have to deal with this because, like I said, it's, it's in our families, it's in our culture, and it over and over again, it is dealt with and addressed directly in the scriptures. And so if we're going to be faithful in dealing with it, dealing with the scriptures, we have to deal with this, especially in this whole topic of what does it mean to be a man made in the image of God for his glory and the good of others. It's important for us to understand that drive, desire, sexuality is, is like, in so many ways, fire. It is an essential element to, to human flourishing. It's a key part of, of how God designed us as human beings. But like any other essential earthly element, if you take it out of its proper context, if you take the fire out of the fireplace, so to speak, this thing that has incredible power and potential to bless you can also burn you and can burn the whole house down. And honestly, I, I don't have the time, nor is it appropriate for me to paint a picture for, for how we have, we, have, we have built a mountain of mess when it comes to 
to the expression of, of human sexuality and in particular the drive and desire of men in this world. Uh, but if you don't believe that this is something worth addressing, I would just encourage you to go investigate a couple of things for yourself. Look at the rate of, of sexual assault on college campuses against women. Look at that rate. Uh, look at, look at uh, go to Google Ner News and search how exposure to, to, how exposure to sexual content online alters the brain chemistry of men. Look at the birth rate in the United States and, and how it's declined in the last 30 years and then index that with, with exposure to erotic content online and tell me there's not a correlation. Or just assess your newsfeed whatever your newsfeed looks like for you, whatever you scroll, and ask yourself, what's the message that's being sent about drive, desire, sexuality? What is the message? Is it clear or is it conflicting? Is it confusing? Because on one hand, we're told that it's everything, but that we're also told it's nothing. And tell me that there is not a mountain of mess and confusion and dysfunction that needs to be dealt with. And to the guys in the room, you and I have to take ownership over the fact that whatever mountain of mess, dysfunction, and confusion exists, we have built a bunch of it. You know who took this really seriously? It was Jesus. Jesus, and then following after him, Paul, as Paul became prominent leader in the church, Paul took this with utter seriousness. Jesus, in one of his most famous sermons, actually his most famous sermon, Jesus is addressing drive, desire, lust, adultery. And Jesus says this, if your eye causes you to sin, cut it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it in the fire. Now, Jesus is not speaking literally, because if he was, we'd have a whole bunch of people walking around looking like pirates. But Jesus is saying, look, this, this thing about drive and desire, it is so potent, so powerful, so important that, that taken out of the right context and corrupted by our sinfulness, abused by us and our culture, it, it, it has deadly consequences and should be treated with immense seriousness. When it comes to dysfunction in the areas of desire, deal with it with deadly seriousness. And then Paul says the same thing. Look again at our reading for this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, jump to verse 18. Paul says, flee from sexual immorality. He says, run like you stole something. Pretend you're being chased by a bear. When you see dysfunction in this area of life looming over you or, or bubbling up within you or temptation coming your way, run like you stole something away from it. Why? Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body, and your body matters. It's not just flesh and blood. It affects you at a soul level, at a heart level. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You, these are key words, you are not your own. Flee like you're being chased by a bear. That, that's Paul's advice to Timothy later on in the New Testament and to the Corinthian church and his advice to you and me, men. When you feel the temptation or the dysfunction rearing its ugly head as you scroll the newsfeed or as you think about what's happening in your own heart and mind, find a way to run in the other direction. Run towards things that you know are higher and noble and good and are of God. Run towards other guys, other people, people who can understand the struggle and confide in them, confess to them, lean on them. Don't just let it sit and simmer because it will boil over and burn. 
flee. Flee. Treat it with seriousness. And so that's what we're doing this morning. Now, as you, as you work through Paul's letters in particular, Paul paints a, a picture of, of human desire. Um, actually, what he does is he paints three ways to see human desire and its largely dysfunctional expressions. And I want to give you an overview of these three things. The first thing you see is that there are some who view drive and desire and the expression of it, they, they view it as an urge. But really, it's, it's, just a, it's just an appetite that needs to be satisfied more than anything else. Uh, look again at what Paul says in his letter to the Corinthians, starting now at verse 12. Paul says, and he's quoting the logic of the Corinthian church, and you'll notice that the logic that's being used among the young people in the Corinthian church is very similar to logic that's being used today. Look, it's just an urge, just an appetite that you need to satiate. It's just a, a, an itch that you need to scratch. Look at this. Paul is quoting the people in the church. All things are lawful for me. In other words, it's not against the law, so what's the problem? But Paul says, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me. Paul says, yeah, but you should not be dominated by anything. In the name of freedom, doing what you want with your body, you're actually being dominated by these urges and impulses. And then he quotes them again. Hey, look, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. It's just an urge that all humans have. What's the big deal? And Paul says, and God is going to destroy both one and the other. God's going to crush that logic. The argument was basically, look, Paul, I know we got a lot of weird stuff happening here in the Corinthian church that is also seen in the culture at large. But look, none of it's illegal. So what's your problem? Also, don't you know that this is just part of a human appetite that we need to satisfy, much like food. And Paul calls it out. He's like, no, 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 no. Not at all. Because if you take that logic that it's just a physical urge and you really press it into its implications, you, you will quickly see that, that that logic is faulty. That logic is faulty. Yes, you, you have an appetite and you have an urge to, to eat lunch immediately following service today. But that is not the same as this. You know the stories and the scars that you carry. You know the wounds that you have from when this drive and desire has been lived out in a dysfunctional way either by you or against you. And we all have those stories. We all have those scars. We all carry those wounds. And I don't care where you eat lunch or where you go for dinner. Food doesn't have the same effect. Bad pizza doesn't create the same problems. This is bigger. This is higher. This is more powerful and it's more potent than merely an urge. Now related to that is the second way in which people are tempted to see drive and desire and sexual expression. And it's this. There are lots of people who see it as a necessary evil. And this is often the view, although albeit unspoken, that you find in religious circles. They'll, they'll, they'll recognize the necessity of drive and desire, but they think it's somehow how bad or broken or dirty, and so they never really deal with it. It's just a necessary evil. In polite company, you don't talk about it, you don't deal with it. We all just pretend it doesn't exist, ever, even though everybody knows that it does. And, and maybe this is the setting that you grew up in, where, where nobody, nobody talked about it. 
Nobody talked about it. And so you were left to learn from, from friends and from culture and from, and from scrolling online. And those are terrible teachers. And what happens when you have terrible teachers is you end up making terrible choices. And, and terrible choices lead to terrible amounts of ignorance and shame. When you don't talk about something, you become ignorant of it and you're left to lean on people who are ignorant as well. And they teach you all kinds of terrible things. And then you make terrible choices and you're filled with all kinds of shame that you don't know what to do with. That's what happens when you think it's just a necessary evil. But that is at odds with what the scripture says about it. The scripture tells us that yes, it's necessary, but it's a necessary good. And it's a beautiful thing and a powerful thing. I mean, you see it in the first two chapters of the Bible right away. God creates everything. Then he creates Adam and Eve and he puts them in the middle of everything and he gives them one job. Go out into the earth, multiply and subdue it. That's a lot of multiplication. There's just two people. That's a lot of math, folks, if you get my draft. And then Adam looks at God and he's like, so, so how are we going to do that? And God's like, trust me, you'll figure it out. And when you do, you will thank me. And then you fast forward to books like Proverbs. And Proverbs is painting this picture of, uh, of marital love. And he's encouraging, the writer of Proverbs, Solomon, is, is encouraging uh, the hearer, the reader, to, to enjoy marital love with all, of its, all that it has to give. And, and he says, drink deeply of the gift that is love within the context of marriage. And then you have Jesus show up and he talks about the union between husband and wife as not just a physical one, but also a spiritual one. It is a commingling of souls. The picture that is painted is one of depth and power and beauty. And it's, and it's essential to our design as human beings and our flourishing as part of his creation. There is nothing rude or improper or impolite about the idea of it. It is so much more than a necessary evil. It is a necessary good. Which brings us to the third and the right way to view this. And this is what the scriptures point us to. We are called to view drive, desire, and the expression of it as, as an honor to possess and a gift to steward. It is an honor to possess it, to have been given it, and is a gift, a good gift to steward. Now, to steward means to manage something, to utilize something according to the intentions of another. If something is a gift, then, then it implies that it has been handed to you with certain intention from the person who gave it to you, that, they, that you would then take this gift and you would enjoy it and you would, you would make the most of it and you would use it according to a certain design towards a certain end. And, and that's the call upon us with our drive and desire and sexual expression is to understand that, that it is a, a gift handed to us from God, but it is one meant to be managed and lived out and expressed in accordance to the will of the giver, and it is an honor to possess this gift. It's an honor. And men, that's important for you to understand because very often you and I are told in explicit and mostly implicit ways that the way in which God has wired you with drive and desire is, is bad, broken, and archaic. 
Because there is a difference between how this desire manifests itself in men than in women. And these two things complement each other. I'll get to that more in a moment. But very often we are told the way in which it manifests itself in us is bad, broken, or archaic. Now, has it been corrupted by sin? Yes. Can it be used and abused in all kinds of terrible ways? Absolutely. It's part of the reason we're having this conversation. But is the gift itself bad? No. It's good and it's an honor to possess And we're called to ask the question, what does it mean to wield this gift rightly? What does it mean? Because masculine and feminine drive and desire are are designed in in complementary ways. Speaking broadly and and generally, you you know how this works. Speaking broadly, generally, um, ladies, you, you you are more verbal we tend to be more visual. But for, for us, physicality leads to emotion. Very often for you, emotion leads to physicality. When, when it comes to intimacy itself, to, to speak kind of crassly, like guys are, are, are helicopters, ready to take flight whenever. And ladies, you, you, you are much more in general, You're, you are like a, a, a very elite private jet. As guys, we, we are not only, we're not always clear as to whether or not we're on the flight list. And if we are, it takes much more runway to get in the air. But, but these things serve to complement each other and we, we, we benefit and bless each other. We restrain each other and we, and we help each other in these complementary ways. But all that to say that the way in which you have been designed Drive, desire, all of it is a gift from God and it is an honor to steward it. It's an honor. So so then what does it mean to steward it correctly? Now, a ton could be said about this. We could talk for weeks on end about what does it mean to steward, drive, and desire as men and women correctly. But, But ultimately, I think guys and girls, it comes down to this. It first and foremost is a spirit filled reframing of your understanding of the whole thing and what it exists for. It is a move from understanding it as a means of gratification into understanding it ultimately as a means, a path, a journey towards sanctification. It's not just about how I can be gratified. That is actually much further down the list. It is how I can grow through the journey of pursuing this in my life with the person that God has called me to live with and to love. It's about growth. It's about growth. You see, again, guys, you are tempted to see this as just an urge or a necessary evil. And when you see it as just an urge, you're going to walk around with a sense of entitlement, a sense of entitlement to satisfy that urge. And and that entitlement to satisfy that urge has led to all kinds of, of terrible things, abuse, brokenness, awful things. It's been used to to rationalize objectifying almost every woman you've ever looked at. It's been used to rationalize looking at images and videos and scrolling them on your phone in secret. It's It's been used to rationalize thinking about someone who isn't your spouse while you're with your spouse. It's been used to rationalize convincing your girlfriend to stay the night even though she said to you she wants to take it slow. And the rationalization you use is, well, it's... It's, it's an urge, it's a need, it's just the body, it's just flesh, it's just sex. That's all it is. That's all it is. It's nothing more. It's not an urge. It's a gift 
to steward. It's an honor to possess. And it is not about being gratified. It's about growing and being sanctified. So for example, if you are here as an unmarried man, but you want to be married, you you feel like, look, look, God has called me to marriage. It's just a matter of to whom? And, And you have a desire to live out the fullness of this gift in the context of marriage. The pursuit of that is going to grow you because what it means under the, under the biblical heading, of drive, desire, and sexuality. What it means is that you are going to have to pursue, woo, and win the heart of a woman. And it means you are going to have to convince her that you are trustworthy and that you are good. And you are going to, if you convince her that you're trustworthy and good, you are then going to have to, if it's not already put together, get your life together to such a degree that you can welcome her life into your life and together you can provide for and support each other in life. And then, and then you're going to have to surround the vulnerability you so deeply desire. You're going to have to surround it with commitment and accountability in the form of engagement and marriage, which is the only thing that makes all that vulnerability safe and joyful. And the pursuit of that to go from, I would love to be married to winning and to wooing and to proving and to accountability to all of that, that is going to grow you, challenge you and change you. And that is the goal. And then when you are married, the goal is still growth, but it's growth in intimacy with the one that you're married to, which is why all the expression of this drive and desire in marriage should be focused on the spouse and nobody else. It should be focused on her. It should take place with her. It it should not meet just your needs, but but her needs. You should be curious. You should ask questions. You should wonder wonder what her well-being is. You should grow in depth of intimacy, connection, oneness, and union as the result of your expression of this desire with her. That's the end result. We are closer, we're more intimate, we're more deeply bonded. And then also, it leads to the growth of a literal family. When it's possible and when it's desired, it leads to the birth of children. And then having to nurture and raise those kids while also pursuing and increasing intimacy with your spouse, boy, that challenge, that will grow you. And hopefully those kids grow and they're really successful and they move out and, they, and then they come back out to live with you but to, but to take care of you with all the money that they've earned. That's what we're moving toward here. If you want to know whether or not you're being a good steward of this gift, guys, ask yourself this question. Are the expressions of this drive and desire that are present in my life right now, and and, and there's always an expression of that drive and desire. Think for a minute. How's it manifesting in your life right now? Are the expressions of this drive and desire, are are they helping to grow me or simply gratify me? Are they helping to grow me towards the pursuit of that spouse? Are they helping to grow me towards greater intimacy with my spouse? Or are they simply serving to gratify? And if the answer to to that question is, well, it's not helping me grow towards a spouse that I want or into deeper connection with a spouse that I have, then odds are whatever it is you're doing isn't helpful. It's probably backward, broken, dysfunctional, and sinful and needs to stop, time to flee. And flee towards some of us guys who are safe, who know the struggle, and 
lean on us and talk to us and, and let, let us help you and walk with you and encourage you and then you can encourage us and we can, we can support each other in this because this, this is not easy. You may still be sitting there wondering, man, is this, is this really worth talking about? Yeah, it is. Guys, it's worth discussing because when we get this wrong, we do immense amount of damage. To ourselves and to others. But, but the primary reason this is worth discussing is the same reason Paul gives in 1 Corinthians. It's worth it because you, you are worth it. And now I know you might be thinking, oh, that, that's cheesy. Well, it's what Paul says. You are. Don't, don't you remember that, that you belong to God? That, that's Paul's argument. Look, be careful about what you do with your body, not just because this drive and desire is, 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 is powerful and potent and spiritual and transformative, but also can burn you and break others. You, you should be mindful of how you live this out because remember, you, you have been bought with a price. You are not your own. <laughs> Put it this way, what Paul's saying is, look, God paid good money for you. In fact, it wasn't money, it was his own son. He sent his own son to live and to die and to rise in order to get you, not just your heart or your mind, but your flesh and your blood and your bone to make you a home for his own spirit. And he loves you so much that he would not only claim you through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, but, but he, would, he would fill you with his spirit, have a plan for your life. He would have higher values for you to pursue, a life for you to live. And even after you die, he loves you so much. He loves what he's purchased so much that he's going to raise it from the dead and then enjoy you, us, forever. Don't you know how valuable you are? And because of what God the Father has paid for you, because of the value he sees in you, shouldn't you want better things for yourself? And please understand, God the Father paid the price in his own son, Jesus Christ, not because of how chaste you have been. He paid the price knowing full well all the mistakes and regrets and terrible things I've done and you've done. And he still said, you're worth it to me. Don't you know how valuable you are? You are not your own. That's why this is worth it. Because you are worth something to God. You, you ask a guy why he wants to climb a mountain, and he'll give you a very simple answer. Because it is there. And I can't ignore it. And the same is true for why we have begun to tackle this topic today because it is there in the scriptures and the culture in our lives and our homes and we simply can't ignore it. But guys, here's what I know about you and me and ladies, this is something to understand about the men in your life. I know that the mountain that's in front of us in this topic is, is a mountain made of shame and regret and fear. Shame over the things that we've done or that we've convinced somebody else to do. Regret over choices that we've made or things we've looked at or things we've said. And then fear, so much fear, so much fear that if, ladies, that if you knew how much of an issue this was for us constantly at all times, like even when we're doing well with it, it's still a thing. It, like if you knew 
the things that have been done to us or the things that have been done by us or how much we wrestle with this, that you, that you would reject us or see us as somehow less than or broken or bad. So much fear. And, and, and to that shame and regret and fear, I just, I just would, would offer you, guys, I would offer you the story of King David. King David, who had it all, and then because he didn't know how to steward this gift well, despite having it all, blew up his entire life in ways in which you probably never could. Lust took over, adultery happened, murder took place, and then David got called out on all of it. And then he's, he's on the floor crying, weeping, and wailing for what he's done and what he's lost for days and days and days. And then finally he gets up and he, he pens this prayer. Psalm 51 is the prayer that David prayed, the song that he wrote the moment he got up kind of off the floor and, and decided to, to live differently as a result of the journey that he'd been on. And listen to what he says in Psalm 51. He says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Throughout the psalm that is about David's fall in this whole area, there is no mention of sex, there's no mention of lust, there's no mention of murder, there's no mention of adultery. What David mentions is, look, I have lost my heart for you, Lord. Because ultimately he knows that the thing beneath the thing is not a, is not a flesh and blood issue, it is a God issue. He has pursued gratification and joy, cheap joy, in places where it simply can't be found. And what he says is, Lord, give me a new heart. Restore to me a right way of living and moving because I have tried to find things that can only be found in you in other places. And when I do that, I look at things, I touch things, I do things that, that bring destruction upon me and my family. So I, I just don't need new habits. No, what I need is a whole new heart. I need to have joy that flows from knowing how much you value me. Give me that and I will be a brand new man. Fill me with the knowledge of how much you love me, despite the fact, even though I am such a mess, a mess of a man. And that's the thing that changes everything. Brothers, I would encourage you to take, take all the things we've talked about today, put it in your back pocket, hold on to it, learn from it, wrestle with it. But above all else, take David's prayer for the next time you fall or you falter or you're scared about that mountain of shame and regret and fear, take David's prayer and make it your own. Create in me, Lord, a new heart. Renew a spirit in me that knows how much I am loved and valued by you through Jesus Christ. And then watch, watch as God covers that mountain in mercy. Amen. Amen.